could air restrain him. Praise the Lord. He is alive. Amen. Uh, if you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. While you're turning there, it was a few weeks ago that uh, my family and I were going through our family devotions that we do um, as often as we, we can. Uh, some of you, many of you have been at our house when we go through our family devotions. We read portion in the scriptures, we sing a little bit, we pray for each other, we read some devotional books. Uh, we have one devotional book that's kind of a, a creation science type of devotional book where we go through different aspects of God's creation, see how amazing it is, it's called How Great. So we were reading this a few weeks ago, and it was talking about the amazing uh, effects called the Coriolis effect. Anybody know the Coriolis effect? I love the Coriolis effect. It's very, very cool. It makes uh, cyclones in the Southern hemisphere turn clockwise, and in the northern hemisphere turn counterclockwise. I might get the clockwise wrong, but needless to say, north of the equator, they spin a different direction than south of the equator. So my daughter's reading this, and uh, I say, hey, you know what's really cool? Not only works with cyclones and hurric hurricanes and things like that, it also works with bathtubs and toilets. And so I start describing, if you flush a toilet in the northern hemisphere, it's going to go one way. If you flush it in the southern hemisphere, it's going to go another way. This is like my moment to be like the proud dad, right? Like I'm telling my kids information. They're just wide-eyed. How does dad know this? He's not a scientist. This is so cool. So my kids are just in awe of me, and I feel like I should win the best uh, dad of the year award. They all say, wow, how cool. My daughter keeps reading. She says, people say that the Coriolis effect even affects the way water spins in a toilet bowl. And I go, see, I told you. They're like, Dad, how did you know? Did you write the book? I said, no, I didn't write it. Like, I just know. Uh, I think I learned when I was a kid. And then she continues and she reads, but that's just a myth. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever seen my wife laugh as hard as she laughed. My daughter's on the floor, just crying with tears in her eyes, laughing so hard, and my proudest moment as a father just shriveled away into nothingness. Luckily, uh, my belief in the myth of the Coriolis effect uh, working on little bodies of water, that's the problem. It's too small of a body of water to do anything with. It works on huge cyclones and typhoons and all those things, but it doesn't work on something that small. Luckily, my belief in that myth that I was told from somebody way back when doesn't change anything about the way I live my life. If the resurrection were a myth, however, if you believed in it, would it change the way that you live your life? If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, I would submit to you, nothing in the world matters. If Jesus is not alive, live however you want, nothing in the world matters. There's no hope. There's nothing after death. Just live it up. Do whatever you want. But if Jesus has been raised, and I would say to you, since he has been raised, then nothing else matters other than him. He said he was going to rise from the dead three days later. He did. And belief in the resurrection should change everything about your life. It's very interesting because the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact, but it's not a historical fact like all other historical facts. Uh, if I believe or don't believe that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon in AD 49, that doesn't change the way I live my life. That's a historical fact, but it doesn't change the way that I live my life now. But the resurrection, a historical fact, changes the way I live my life right now, today. 
And it's not just an intellectual assent. That's why it's different than every other historical fact. It's not just saying, I believe that those uh, facts actually happen and occur. I believe those events are real. It's a meeting of the Lord personally, intimately, being, being united to him in faith. So this morning, what I want us to do is I want to meet Christ along with three eyewitness testimonies. I want us to see, John records several eyewitness testimonies, but I just want us to put together three eyewitness testimonies that see the risen Christ, that interact with his resurrection. And I believe that they will answer for us a very carefully, a, a precise and a carefully understood question. What does the resurrection change? How does it impact your life? And how should you respond based on these three remarkable responses to the risen Redeemer? How should you and I respond as we see their response? So, let's read John chapter 20 in its entirety together this morning. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came earlier to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone was already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. So Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that Christ must rise again from the dead. So the disciple went away, again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Christ had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brother, and go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And he said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see 
in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails and I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who, do, who did not see me and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray together. Father, we come to a chapter of your holy scriptures that, that should change us from the inside out, that should affect us very deeply. And God, I know what we are desiring to take place here this morning will not happen if your spirit does not make it happen. And so we declare with joy our dependency on him. We pray as we do every Sunday, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We need you to see Christ. We need you in order to have the eyes of our hearts opened. We don't want to be like Mary who, while seeing you face to face, doesn't really see. So speak to us the way that you spoke to Mary. Calling her by name. Call us by name this morning. Breathe life into deaf, dead hearts. Give encouragement to weary hearts. Give faith to doubting hearts. And give all of us affections for Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. There are three main individuals that I want to look at this morning in John chapter 20. We're not going to be able to dive too deeply into them because we're going to look at the entirety of this chapter. But I think that as we look at the three individuals, we will see their responses. We can ask our own hearts about our own responses to the risen Redeemer. Let's start with Mary. Mary Magdalene in verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to, to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone had already been taken away from the tomb. If you tie all of the four Gospels up together, you'll see that there are two groups of women that go to the tomb. Luke chapter 23 tells us that one group had prepared spices Friday evening before the sun went down, before the Sabbath. The other group of women is in Mark 16 that purchased spices after the Sabbath. So it seems like the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. Uh, the first day of the week is Sunday. It seems like as the sun was going down on Friday, on Good Friday, taking Jesus off of the cross, getting him prepped for burial, putting him in the tomb. It seems like they did that in such a hurry that they felt that their uh, anointing of him and getting him ready for burial was not adequately done. So they want to go back and do it again and make sure that it's done uh, without this haste involved in it. So Mary comes early, and it's very interesting that Mary comes uh, early to the tomb with a group of women. Women are the first people to interact with and see the risen Christ, which if 
If somebody's trying to make up this account, if John is writing, knowing that Jesus did not rise from the, the dead, wanting you believe, to believe that he did rise from the dead, if John is making this up, he would never have said that women were the first eyewitness testimonies because women back then, they couldn't even speak in court. They didn't even hold eyewitness testimony power in court or authority in, co- in court. So there's no way, if John is making this story up, there's no way he would start with women seeing the risen Savior. So she comes early in the morning. Other women will come as well. They'll come later. They'll, they'll uh, be there after her. We see in other Gospels that they're wondering about who's going to uh, roll the stone away. They don't even ask about the guards. God has to take care of both of those. The guards uh, faint like dead men. The stone is rolled away because of the earthquake, right? The angel shows up. There's a huge earthquake, rolls away the stone. An earthquake had marked the Savior's death, and an earthquake marks the Savior's resurrection. And so verse 2, she runs and she comes to Simon Peter in the upper room, to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John. And she said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. They've taken away his body. So number one, she doesn't believe in the resurrection, or else she would have said, he's gone, he must have been raised from the dead. Number two, she says, they, they've taken away. She's speaking to Peter and to John, and she says, they, who's they? Is it the Romans? Is it the Jews? We don't know who she's referring to, and honestly, it doesn't matter who she's referring to. It's not, we have taken his body. That's what matters. Uh, Many people say, well, the disciples just stole his body and then uh, made this lie up that he was raised from the dead, but she doesn't go back and say, We've taken his body. Did you do it? You took his body, right? No, she comes back and she says, they've taken his body. And the disciples don't say, "Uh, we did it. They go running after to figure out what happened. Where is his body? So they go back. Verses 3 through 10 moves to Peter and John. I I would like to stay with Mary since she began this chapter. Verse 11, Mary is standing outside of the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stoops in and she looks into the tomb. So Peter and John have already shown up. Peter goes in. He sees everything. John then goes in. He sees everything. They come out. They look and they leave. Mary's left by herself. She sees two angels in white, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And normally the the greeting would be, do not be afraid. But here they're speaking to Mary, saying, woman, why are you weeping? And she says, because they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they have laid him. Where have they put his body? Verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. I don't know how this occurred. She's talking to the angels and then she leaves. If I'm talking to angels, I would like to keep talking to angels. I don't know. In my sanctified imagination, I just see the angels as she's saying, I want to know where my Savior is. I just see the angels kind of going, he's over there. Look, maybe she hears the sound of Jesus' sandals. She turns and she looks, but she doesn't know, verse 14, that it's Jesus that she's looking at. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise for us reading this gospel Uh, Luke was in circulation at that time. Luke had told us in Luke uh, chapter 24 on that road to Emmaus that there were people that were talking with Jesus that didn't recognize it was Jesus. So we know that there's a a strangeness to Jesus' resurrected body that people don't recognize him right away. This resurrection body is really strange. It has the marks of death, 
but it will never die. It can pass through walls, locked doors, grave clothes, but it's not a ghost because it eats food and it drinks. You say, how does that work? Explain that to me. And I would say to you, I just did. <laughs> you say, that's not very good. And I say, I know, I agree. That's the only explanation we get. I've never seen a resurrected body, but what we know from the scriptures, we know. It seems to be this strange body that can never die again, but looks simple like a, a gardener. There's also something else going on in Mary's mind, because again, she does not believe in the resurrection as, as if Jesus were going to be raised from the dead. She doesn't have a category for that. So everything that she sees is through a grid that would say resurrection isn't a possibility. That's not one of the options of what's going on here. She filters everything through that grid. And though she's staring right at Jesus, she can't see him. I think that gives us just one massive implication for us this morning. A risen redeemer means that God does not fit into our human categories. Trusting in, savoring in a, a, a risen redeemer, savoring a risen redeemer, it means that God's not going to fit in our categories for what a human uh, would think that God should be. We, we saw this when we studied through the book, Gentle and Lowly, right? We saw, we so often try to place onto God this sense of who he should be. But he's completely different than us. And I think that's one of the messages of the Bible. One of the main messages of the Bible is that God never fits into human categories and conceptions of what he should be like. So she stares at Jesus, sees him, but doesn't see him. How is Jesus going to respond? Verse 15. He says, woman, why are you weeping? He asks a question. He doesn't come like a sergeant seeking submission. He comes like a counselor asking questions, drawing her heart out. And then he asks this question, whom are you seeking? I just, I wonder how many times Mary thought about that question in the years to come after this moment. Who, who was I seeking? I was seeking a dead Messiah. I was seeking a dead body to try and find. She even says that. Supposing him to be the gardener, she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. I don't know how she's going to carry a lifeless, dead body of Jesus, but she thinks that she can carry him away. Now, Jesus says to her, in verse 16, Mary. He'd been talking to her. It's not like he uses a different voice, right? He'd been talking to her this whole time. But when he calls her by name, something changes. By the way, that's the order of salvation for anyone here who's saved. It's not, I know that you are my teacher, and then Jesus says, you are my sheep, you are my Mary, you are my friend. No, Christian salvation is never our attainment. It's never a prize after a long struggle while God waits for us. No, he comes to us and he wakes us out of sleep. It's always a gift of grace. Notice this order here. It's not her acting first and then him responding. As one hymn writer says, My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst, this knowing if I love thee, 
thou must have loved me first. If you love Jesus Christ, that's only possible because he loved you first. And he called you and he spoke to your heart. There would be absolutely no hope if God waited for us to make the first move. We would be lost if he stood apart from us, tapping his foot impatiently, waiting for us to figure out for ourselves who he is, where he is. Unless he calls us by name, we would never come to him. And so that's exactly what he does with, G with Mary. He calls her by name. She turns and she says to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher, my teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. So we see, number one, that a risen redeemer means that God does not fit into our human categories of what we think he should be. Number two, we see that a risen redeemer means that God's always going to be making the first move to come to us. God's always going to be making the first move to get you. But we also see, number three, a, a third implication of this response that Mary has with Jesus is that a risen Savior, a resurrected Christ, means an intimate, personal relationship with him. It's not just, I know that he's alive, and then I can go on my merry way. She doesn't say, sweet, you're alive, that's amazing, and I'm off. She clings to him. Verse 17, that's why he has to say, stop clinging. You're doing it, stop clinging. Now, people ask, why does he say that? Some people make a lot out of this that I don't think is there in the text. Some people say, well, he's got a glorified body, so he must be too holy. So he's saying, don't touch me, kind of like the burning bush, right? Like, don't come near to me, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. That, that clearly can't be what's happening here, because he's going to tell Thomas, touch me, right? He's going to say, touch me. So that's not the issue. The word clinging is the issue here. Uh, it, some of your translations might say, hold on to me. It means to cling tightly without any thought of letting go. Some uh, translations even would use the word pinch. You're, you're pinching, you're holding so closely. Again, in my own sanctified imagination, with Mary clinging so closely, pinching, maybe he's having to squeak these words out, right? If you've ever been hugged by somebody so tightly and he's going, stop clinging to me. There's this aspect of Mary saying, I can't let you go. That's why he says what he says. It's not, don't touch me or don't embrace me. If we could put it in our own words, he's going to say, I have not yet ascended to my father. This is what he's saying. Mary, you want me never to leave again. And put yourself in her shoes. Is there a loved one that you have lost? That if they could come back for just an hour and you could talk to them, and as the hour comes to a close, what would you do? He would hug them and he'd say, please don't go. That's what she's doing here. I thought you were gone forever and you're here. I don't want you to ever leave. And Jesus is saying, in effect, I have to leave. My mission is not to stay here permanently. I have to go. But if I leave, John 14 through 16, I can send the Holy Spirit. And if I send the Holy Spirit, it's like I've never left. I can give not only intimacy to you specifically in a personal relationship, but to anyone who believes in me. This is what the resurrection does. Augustine says, you ascended from before our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find you in our, heart, in our hearts. What a paradox. You have to let me go 
so that I can be with you forever. What about you? Can I ask you this morning, do you feel the intimate presence of God? Do you feel his nearness? One of the best indicators of this is your prayer life. Do you talk with your father and your elder brother, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Spirit, in a relationship with them? Do you talk to them? Do your anxieties flee in their presence? She clings to him and he says, I need to leave, but once I leave, I will send my spirit and I'll never leave. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Every time we see somebody meet with the resurrected Christ, they always walk away saying, I need to tell somebody about this. Go, tell of his goodness. That's what we sang earlier this morning. I can't hold this in. I have to tell somebody this is the most incredible news in the world. I can't keep this to myself. So she leaves and she goes. What does Mary's remarkable response teach us? Number one, the message of the Bible is, one of the messages is that God never fits into our human categories and conceptions of what he should be. Number two, there would be no hope for us if God waited for us to make the first move to come to him. Number three, that the resurrection brings personal intimacy with Christ and gives that intimacy to everyone, to anyone who would ask. Now, let's go back to Peter and John. That's the first testimony, the first eyewitness that we hear, the remarkable response of Mary. Let's go back to Peter and John, and specifically we'll look at John. In verse 3, Peter and the other disciple went forth. So this is after Mary said, his body's gone. Now again, their response should have been, it's exactly as the Lord told us. We knew this was coming. We knew he'd be raised from the dead, but they don't say that. Instead, they run. They run and they leave the upper room to go to the tomb. Verse 4, the two were running ahead together. They were going together. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. That's John. John's writing this gospel. I like how John, a couple of times, one time uh, implied, two times explicitly, he states, I run faster than Peter. So he's writing this gospel. He wants you to know for all of eternity, he's a faster runner than Peter is. Uh, Peter also has one up on John, though, because John stops at the mouth of the tomb. He waits. He doesn't go in. Peter's courageous. So John's faster. Peter, I guess, has more courage. So they go to this tomb. Verse 5, stooping in, stooping and looking in, Peter sees the linen wrappings lying there, but he doesn't go in. So he, uh, th this is the uh, other disciple, John. In verse 6, the Simon Peter, the uh, other one running with him, comes and follows him and enters the tomb. So he's more courageous, and he sees the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. Now, one of the very interesting details, it's, it's hard to see, it's kind of impossible to see just in English, but there's a, there's a Greek word. So normally when you talk about somebody seeing somebody or something in the Greek language, it's the word blepo. I love that word. That means to see. So blepo means to see. In fact, if you go to uh, verse 1, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw. That's the word blepo. She saw. That's the normal word, to just see. But if you go down to verse 6, in verse 6, there's a different word. Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw 
the linen wrappings. It's not blepo, which we would normally expect to be the word for seen. It's actually a word that you know. It's the word theoreo, which we get our word theory or theorize from. See, they're not just seen. They're seen and interacting with what they're seeing. They're coming up with theories. Just, just picture it in your mind. Picture what's going on here. Peter and John are standing at the tomb. They see the open tomb. They go in. They see the linen wrappings, and they, their wheels start turning, right? Okay. If somebody stole his body, why would they take time to take the wrappings off? They would just be carrying out the lifeless dead body of a naked individual, which that's incredibly shameful. Why would they do that? They would have left the wrappings on. So the wrappings are here. Body's not here. If they did want to rip the wrappings off, they would have done exactly that. They would have just ripped the wrappings off. So who, in their right mind, if they're trying to steal this body, would take time to carefully unwrap and then carefully put it back? So that doesn't work. Face cloth. Uh, these are very specific terms that are used that parallel John 11, right? Remember Lazarus, when he was raised from the dead, he comes out, and what does Jesus say? Unbind him. It's a word for rip these, these uh, linen wrappings off of his face because if you don't take it off of his face, he's going to die, and I'm going to have to do this miracle all over again. So get the wrappings off. Don't just take time. Hang on. Hold your breath, buddy. No, rip them off. So if, if Jesus raised uh, if he never died, let's say that. Let's say he never died, which is a theory. Some people say he swooned, he fainted on the cross. Let's say he never died and somehow resuscitated himself on that slab in that cave. Why would he slowly take that wrapping off and then put it down? Why would he slowly take the, the wrappings off and then walk out naked? What is he doing? This doesn't make sense. Much less the fact that there's no way he could have done that because he actually did die. And then... He had 75 to 100 pounds of spices all over his face and body, so he was suffocated to death if he wasn't dead before. So they look, they see the linen wrappings. They see the face cloth lying there. They see the stone rolled away. Who, who moved that? How did that happen? Mary, do you remember how that happened? No, it was here when I got here. Who did that? Maybe they had to step over Roman soldiers, right? Wait, who did that? I mean, you can picture this, right? Can't you just see Peter and John? Peter's like, I don't care. He's sitting there at the foot of the, of the slab where Jesus was laid, and he, maybe he's weeping. Maybe he's, oh, I wish I could tell you that I'm sorry for the times that I betrayed you. And John's just looking, right? What? But the stone, but the guards, but they're, they're trying every conceivable way to answer this problem naturally. That's the word, theoreo. They're theorizing. How did this happen? How did this happen? In their minds, every non-supernatural explanation for what happened is being eliminated, right? Check, check, check. Couldn't be that, couldn't be that, couldn't be that. And as the great theologian Sherlock Holmes once said, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So they've gone through, ah, that couldn't have happened. No, that's impossible. That wouldn't have happened. No, that didn't happen. 
the only other possibility is Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's why in verse 8, the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, that's John, also entered. And he saw and he believed. He didn't see Jesus. He saw enough evidence, put it all together, narrowed down all the possibilities and said there's only one possible explanation for what happened. He rose from the dead. That's why, by the way, verse 9 says, because or for, he believed, so he sees the evidence and he believes because as yet they did not understand the scriptures, that he must rise from the dead. Now, what does that mean? What John is saying is, I believed without even fully understanding what the Bible says. I believed just purely on evidence. I, I knew what Jesus had said earlier, and I just believed based on the evidence that I saw. And again, belief isn't just mental assent. He's not just going, ah, he's raised from the dead. How cool is that? All right, let's go home. It's giving everything of who you are to that belief. It's basing your whole life on that reality. Everything changes in this moment for John. There's a story of a famous tightrope walker who showed his skill and dexterity to a crowd by walking on a high wire uh, over a really high spacing gap, would walk back on the, the rope back and forth again and again. He walked to the middle. He sat down on the rope. He ate his lunch while he was sitting there on the middle. He went on a bicycle. He rode on a bicycle. He even took a wheelbarrow across. And the audience is just applauding the whole time. He asked the crowd if they believed that he could safely carry 200 pounds of weight across the rope in that wheelbarrow. And everybody cheered. Yes, nobody had a doubt. Yeah, you could do that. You just sat on the, the rope and uh, ate your meal. I mean, what is this? Did somebody not love you enough as a child? Like, you need all of this attention. What's going on? They all go, yeah, we believe you can do it. And then he asked for a volunteer. Who wants to do it? Who wants to go into the wheelbarrow? I'll push you. No one raised their hand. Nobody wants to die. <laughs> now, I, I think this is a very interesting analogy to what faith is. Everybody in that crowd believed he could do that. Could I carry 200 pounds across this? Absolutely, I believe that you could do that. Are you willing to bet your life on it? Nobody was. I, I just wonder, for everyone in this room, I wonder if that might be where you are this morning. Maybe you agree with the facts of the resurrection. Maybe you've gone through all of those different theories. No, there's no way he could have swooned. The disciples didn't steal his body. It wasn't just a, uh, you know, a vision that people had. All the different ways that you could explain away the resurrection. You've gone through each of them, and you've said, no, there's no way that th this isn't real. It's true. He's raised from the dead. But it stops there. You go, I believe that those facts are true, but you've not given your life to those facts, to that reality. You've not gotten into the wheelbarrow, as it were. That's what John does. He sees, he knows that this is possible, and he gets into the wheelbarrow. His response to the resurrection teaches us that we have more than enough evidence, not only physical evidence to believe, but all that's written down in the scriptures to believe. He reasoned, he believed, without seeing the risen Christ. What an enormous testimony to us this morning. Without seeing Jesus... He saw enough to believe. You can too. You can too. Well, let's move to our third individual. We see Mary's remarkable response. We see John's remarkable response. Let's go to Thomas's response. 
In verses 19 through 23, Jesus shows up in the upper room and gives this incredible sermon. But, verse 24, Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Which is always just a reminder to me that you don't ever want to miss a sermon because you never know what's going to happen, right? Thomas is gone and Jesus shows up. So, he's not there. We don't know why he isn't there. Uh, We do know that he's a bit of a negative person. He's dominated by his own uh, negativity. You remember John 11, verse 6, when Jesus says, let's go back to Jerusalem. He goes, fine, let's go with the master and we'll die with him. We're all just going to go die. It's kind of a, an Eeyore, right? Oh, bother, don't attach my tail. It's just going to fall off again. You could see him saying after the, resurre- after the crucifixion, see, I told you it was going to happen. I told you he was going to die. I told you this was pointless. Why did we fall him to begin with? He's a, he's a pessimist. Uh, pessimists usually carefully guard any feelings of hope that they may have. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. So if I never have hope, then I never have sickness in my heart. That's the pessimist's bumper sticker. And then, as every pessimist ultimately does at one point in their life, they go, you know what, I think I should try to hope for something. And they step outside, and they hope for something, and it doesn't happen, and they go back inside their pessimism, and they say, see, I was right all along. I should never have hoped for anything, and now I doubly will never hope for anything. I wonder if you find yourself looking at the resurrection like Thomas, or looking even at life like Thomas, a little bit of a pessimist. Uh, By the way, one way that you know if you're a pessimist, you really don't like being around people who see the glass half full, right? You're like, what's wrong with you? At least go to the place of realism and say, it's just halfway there. But don't be all excited about everything. Stop being so excited. The last thing that you want to do if you're a pessimist is party with everyone who is ecstatic and happy and joyful and hopeful. And that's why I think Thomas probably isn't there. Thomas just doesn't want to be around. I mean, you can see this scene, right? When he does finally show up, verse 25, the other disciples are saying, we've seen the Lord. We've seen him. You can, just, you can just picture Thomas watching the reaction of the disciples, saying, yeah, right. No, you want him to be alive so much that you've seen visions. You're, uh, you're just in like a hypnosis state. You're seeing things. You're hallucinating. This is ridiculous. And finally, he blows up. I've had it. Verse 25, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. Again, it's not hands and feet, it's hands and side. Uh, Reminding us yet again, Jesus didn't faint on the cross. He had nail prints in his hands and his feet, but he had a spear mark through his side Because when they were going to go break the legs of all the people being crucified, they went up to Jesus' legs to break them to kill him faster. And they realized we don't need to break his legs because he's already dead. Somebody said, I don't think that's the case because this is such a very quick death for crucifixion. Let's double check. They thrust a spear into his side. The disciples knew that. He was dead. And so he says, unless I see those things, I will not believe. My Bible just says, I will not believe. It's an emphatic. It's a double negative in the Greek. Never, no, never will I ever believe. Or if you're from the South, I ain't never going to believe. I ain't never going to believe. So we put a label on Thomas, right? Our dear friend Thomas here. We say he's doubting Thomas, which he is. But I think a more accurate, accurate title for him would be disbelieving Thomas. 
defiant even. He's determined in his doubting. There's an honest kind of doubt that seeks information to clarify the truth. There's an honest form of doubt that says, I have my doubts, I have my struggles, I have my concerns, but I'm going to take them to Jesus. I'm going to take them to the word. That's not this kind of doubt. This is defiance. He's not seeking any information. The information's there all around him. The disciples have seen. They would have no reason to lie about what they've seen. He's not saying, I don't think I can believe that. That's tough to believe. He's saying, I will not believe. I will not believe. I mean, there's such arrogance in this man. Thomas dictates the terms that the resurrected Christ must meet in order to win over his own belief. This issue is not an an unintelligence dilemma. It's a heart dilemma. This is unbelief cemented in a concrete slab of unwillingness. So my question is, how is our Savior going to react to this kind of defiance? Verse 26. After eight days, my Bible says after eight days, yours might say a week later, because in Jewish reckoning, you start with the day that you're in. So Sunday to Sunday is eight days. After eight days, his disciples were again inside in that upper room. Thomas is with them. Jesus comes, the doors are shut, and he stands in their midst. So again, the doors are shut. They're still a little bit afraid. And he stands in their midst and he says, peace be with you. So he addresses all of them. Then he turns to Thomas. How is he going to speak to Thomas? He says, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand, put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Every demand that Thomas made is countered by an invitation by Jesus. Do this. See for yourself. It's literally the Greek word for examine. Examine me. Don't just believe in blind faith, examine. You had questions, you had doubts, you had concerns. I'm bringing you proof. In my mind, I look at our Savior and I just think, hasn't Jesus given enough, sacrificed enough, been humiliated enough, but again, he makes himself nothing, the Lord of all, meeting Thomas's demands. What a kind Savior we serve. What a gentle and lowly Savior who says, you have doubts, you don't want to believe, I'll show you. I want you to believe. If I had been Jesus, I would have humiliated Thomas. I would have made him suffer for daring to demand anything from me. And that's why I'm not the Savior, and that's why I need the Savior. Because the conquering lion of Judah is a lamb yet again, humbly serving. Reach here. Everything that you had questions about, I'll answer. And then he ends by saying, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Literally in the Greek, it's stop becoming an unbeliever. You're headed down a path of unbelief. Stop this unwillingness to believe. Instead, start being a believer. Thomas, if you go down this path, it leads only to determined disbelief. So stop now and believe. By the way, this is exactly the way our Lord works with us today. It's grace first. Here I am. Every doubt that you have, I give you an answer for. Now a command. Grace, then the command. Grace to live out the command. This is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. 
Jesus, in mercy and grace, gives a command to Thomas after he graciously answers all of his demands. And how does Thomas respond? Verse 28, he answers and he says, my Lord and my God. No Jewish man would ever use these words if they were not addressing God. You would never call a human being these things. Thomas is saying, you are God. You are God. And, by the way, no one is a Christian who does not confess these realities of Jesus and lives according to them. He is our Lord. He is our God. He makes the connection. If you've been raised from the dead, you're much more than just, hey, my rabbi's back. You're my God. It's very interesting. We don't see Thomas even doing the things that he said he needed to do to believe, right? We don't see him saying, okay, before I believe, nail prints, side. We just see Jesus says, you can do that if you need it. And Thomas goes, I believe. Leon Morris writes, it's possible that the words of Jesus, more than anything, brought conviction. For they showed that Jesus had been perfectly aware of what Thomas had laid down as his demands. How did he arrive at that knowledge? Unless he had been with Thomas the whole time, just unseen. See, Thomas says, I, I don't need to, to fulfill those requirements. I don't need to touch you. I don't need to, to place my hand in, in your side. I don't need to do any of that. Because I know you are God. Because I know the disciples didn't tell you what my demands were. You heard all along. You were here. You know you knew those demands, and yet you still love me? His hardness of heart just melts away at the kindness of God. Jesus says, verse 29, because you've seen me, you, you, you have believed. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. I think he's referring to the disciples. They've not seen and yet they believe. Uh, he's not saying, cursed are you for believing without or with needing to see. But he's saying, hey, there's going to be people that come after that aren't going to see me, but they're going to believe. They're blessed in doing that. That's the way that we have believed. That's why 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, now you believe in him, and you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So what parts of who Christ is, what parts of God's word are you struggling with doubt to accept, to believe, and to receive? Thomas's remarkable response at the risen Redeemer is to see kindness overwhelms his doubts, answers every objection and fear, and brings him to a place of joyful submission to say, my Lord and my God. John ends this chapter by saying, in verse 30, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, most of the Gospels include around 40 miracles. John just picks seven. These have been written, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. He gave seven different miracles, and he ends with the, the most miraculous miracle of all, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He who was delivered over because of transgressions, our transgressions, was raised for our justification. 
my favorite Easter quote goes like this. The corpse of Jesus just lay there in the silence of that tomb. By all appearances, it had been tested and tried and found wanting. If you had been there to pull open his bruised eyelids, matted together with mottled blood, you would have looked into blank holes. If you had lifted his arm, you would have felt no resistance. You'd have only heard the thud as it hit on the table when you let it go. You might have walked away from that morbid scene muttering to yourself, the wages of sin truly is death. But somewhere before dawn, on a Sunday morning, a spike-torn hand twitched. A blood-crusted eyelid opened. The breath of God came blowing into that cave and a new creation flashed into reality. God was not simply delivering Jesus and with him all of us from death. He was also vindicating him and with him all of us. By resurrecting Jesus from the dead, God was affirming what he had said over the Jordan waters. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He was declaring Jesus to be the son of God in power. How do you know when somebody's sentence has been fully paid and completed, when they walk out of jail, your sentence is done. You're free to go. Jesus went into death. The wages of sin is death. And when he walked out of that tomb on Sunday morning, he was walking out to prove once and for all that the sentence had truly been paid. It's finished. It's finished. So what's your response to the resurrection? What's your response? The pastor tells a story of, a, of an older lady, a long member of the church, shook hands with the pastor after the service was over and said, that was a wonderful sermon. Just wonderful, she said. Everything that you said applies to somebody I know. How often do we do that? We go, oh, that's wonderful. I wish some of my pessimistic friends would learn about Thomas. That's wonderful. I, I, I don't want you to think of anybody else. I want to think you, you alone. Think of yourself. What is your response? Have you responded to the historical reality of the resurrection? Have you responded to it? You have. What is it? You've either said, that's great. Maybe you believe it's true, but I'm not going to live my life according to it. The Bible would say that's not genuine belief. That's just an acknowledgement of fact, but that's not saving faith. Would you get in the wheelbarrow, as scary as that might seem, and say, Jesus, I'm here, I'm yours, and I know that you can hold me, and I trust you. That's genuine saving faith. I'm not going to look to my own effort. I'm not going to look to my own goodness. My righteous works are filthy rags before Jesus, and all of my sin deserves punishment in hell for all of eternity. But Jesus paid my penalty, and on Sunday, he went free. And he says, if you would but trust in me, you could have eternal life. Who do you identify with in John chapter 20? Maybe you identify with Mary, such a deep and intimate love for Jesus because of everything that he's done for you. You remember Mary in Luke chapter 8 was the woman who had seven demons, and Jesus freed her from those demons. But maybe like Mary, you have categories that just still don't make sense in your mind about who God is. 
But you know that he was raised for you and you cling to him knowing that he will always be with you through every struggle, every confusion, every moment. Maybe you're like John. You see the evidence, you've combed through it meticulously and now you say, I have enough evidence to believe and I'm going to base my entire life on those evidences, on those facts. Even if I don't see the Lord, I can believe. Or maybe you're like Thomas. I have doubts. I have lots of doubts. I'm not even wanting to do any work to fight through those doubts. I would just, I would ask you, I'd beg you this morning to just pray, okay, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Help me in my unbelief. Listen to him say to you this morning, stop on your unbelief and start believing. Maybe it's an aspect of God's character. Maybe it's his goodness or his sovereignty over your life. Maybe this morning's the morning to say, I'm done. I'm done wrestling. I'm done doubting. I believe. Maybe it's the fact that he could love you in your sin, in your struggle. No, I I need to perform. I need to work. I need to do something to pay some form of penance. No, stop being an unbeliever. Believe. If you ask these three individuals, tell me your story. Tell me your testimony. I think that they would say something to the effect of, I was stuck in a life of demon possession and sin, but God's grace was greater than all of my sin. I saw an empty tomb, and I knew Jesus walked out alive. Justice was fully served, and mercy won. I think Thomas would say, I experienced the kindness of Jesus. It drew me in. You see, every story that they would tell is not about them. Even this morning, as they tell their story to us, it's all about Jesus. And our story as well finds its ultimate meaning and culmination and climax in everything that Jesus is for us as our risen Redeemer. Father, we thank you for our Savior. We want to meditate on our story, on the three stories that we heard. We want to see their implications. And as we, as we sit in this moment, and prepare our hearts to partake of communion. As we just listen to a song, pour over our souls, may we see that every single story is about Christ. It's about Him. And I pray that you would encourage us to let our story and our song be our Savior, praising Him all the day long. We pray it in His name. Amen. 